0: me out of respect for the Word and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 as we continue on in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Our reading will begin this morning at verse 10 and go through verse 16. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not consent her, send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean. Now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are your servants. Deal with us in mercy. Do that by teaching us your word pray, O Lord, that your word would be clear to us this morning. And that it would clarify and resolve issues in our own hearts and minds. And that it would convict us and confirm truth within our hearts and minds. That we would know how to live for your glory in everything. Assist us now by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I was checking out some of the current divorce rates in our country on a website called Divorce.com. Came across a number of unsettling statistics. Anywhere between 40 to 50% range is the number of people who will divorce who get married the first time. People who get married the second time, their divorce rate surges to about 60%. And those who get married the third time, divorce at about a 75% clip. Looking into some of those numbers and breaking them down, you see some more discouraging statistics. Women who marry under the age of 20 get divorced 27% of the time. Men who get married between 20 and 24 get divorced 38% of the time. But there was some good news in there as I looked at these statistics. Uh, the older people get when they get married, their divorce rate tends to go down. So those who get married after the age of 30, for instance usually have a divorce rate of about 10%, or at least that's what figures tell us. All well, this is, of course, very unsettling because uh, in our own country, for instance, in the early 20th century, the divorce rate in was about 10%. And I guess as we think about all of these numbers, what would come to our mind is this is something gone so fundamentally wrong that we are at such a new stage in marital relationships, a sort of unparalleled uh, position and state in our history that the marriage rules and principles from the Word of God simply don't apply because they could never have envisioned uh, such a situation of families breaking up at such record numbers. Well... The answer to that is no. The Bible is always relevant, and it's particularly interesting to note that the divorce rates of the Greco-Roman period, the age of the apostles and of Jesus, parallel and track fairly closely with what we find in our own nation in the 21st century here in America. And it's on account of that that both Jesus and the apostles address that, And we have one of those passages where this particular issue is addressed, 1 Corinthians 7. And I would say that as we enter into the passage, the dominating thought of this passage is that Christians shouldn't divorce. But it's a very nuanced discussion. As usual with the Apostle Paul, he sees things in a very nuanced and complex way. And this morning I'm going to walk our way through the passage noticing two points. First of all, there are prohibitions against divorce, and then there are permissions for divorce. First of all, we'll take the prohibitions. You'll notice here that the Apostle Paul does something interesting here in verses 10 and 12. For instance, in verse 10, he says, I give instructions to the married, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. So what the apostle is doing here is he's saying on the one hand in verse 10, what I'm going to do is appeal to the teaching of Jesus while he was here during his earthly ministry. And then in verse 12, the apostle is saying now I'm going to update and apply those uh, to the particular situation of living in Corinth and gospel preaching and the missionary movement of the church. So first of all, we look at what the Apostle says here that Jesus taught. In order to see what Jesus taught, you need to turn with me over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Because clearly, uh, Paul is thinking in terms of, of this particular narrative, and there's another one in Matthew that we have to look at as well. And what you'll notice here as you enter into this passage, I can put my bookmark here so I can get back over there easily, what you're going to notice here in this passage, first of all, we find here in verse 2, Jesus has been teaching all day, and then we're told that some Pharisees start coming to Jesus, and they come testing Him. Now, bear that in mind, that's a very important contextual clue, the Pharisees are not here coming to be instructed, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus because they want to test Him, they want to trip Him up, they want to find a reason for an accusation to bring against him so they can get rid of this guy who is a major nuisance to them. And notice here the question because everything hinges on the proper interpretation of the question. I want you to listen to the question very carefully. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, I'm going to make a lot of this because the proper interpretation of the passage hinges on understanding what is meant by for any reason. What you have to understand here is that the Pharisees are drawing Jesus into a dispute that's happening among the scholars in Israel. And there's two different camps of scholars... Uh, within Judaism, there is the rabbinical school of Hillel and there is the rabbinical school of Shammai. And you say, big deal, why should I know those differences? Because those differences stand behind this passage and if you don't know those differences, you can't understand what Jesus is saying. And you'll misunderstand, you'll misinterpret, and you'll misapply what Jesus is teaching here about divorce. You have the Halal School, and both of them are basing their questions on an interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1, which says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because she's found, he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. Now here's the, here's the crux of the matter. There's two words here in the Hebrew and also in the Greek translation. Indecency and a matter. That's what it literally says, indecency and a matter. Now, the school of Shammai looked at that and said, really, it's the same thing. And the thing is uh, sexual indecency. The school of Hillel looked at that and said there's two reasons given here for divorce. Sexual indecency or any matter at all. Now, these guys were very good lawyers. They drove a truck through that wedge. The school of Hillel used that particular passage and that distinction between the two words, sexual indecency and for any matter. They drove a truck through that. Their view of divorce was popularized and practiced and applied all throughout Israel in Jesus' day, so their divorce rate was probably even higher than ours today in North America. It got really crazy when they applied this. For instance, one of the representatives of Hillel said this, a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him, because he has found in her indecency for any reason. Another representative of Hillel said this, Even if he found another fairer than her, he may divorce, for it is written, It shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes, the husband may divorce. Uh, In other words, basically, the, the representatives, the rabbis of Hillel basically said, If your wife burns the toast for you at breakfast, you can send her a bill of divorce before lunch. That's... How liberal they were And it's shocking You think about that You say, wow And so You have to be aware of the fact That is what Jesus is addressing That particular idea And that's the the issue behind this phrase For any reason What they're asking Jesus is Is it okay to interpret this like Hillel does And say that you can divorce somebody For burning toast at breakfast That's what Jesus is responding to and they're asking him, is that the proper interpretation of Deuteronomy one?" So they They're asking Jesus to interpret that passage for them. Now, Jesus responds. Sir, developed an intricate response, so bear with me as we work our way through uh, the passage to Jesus' conclusion. First of all, he says in verse 4, uh, Have you not read that he... Uh, made them male and female from the beginning. In other words, Jesus is quoting here from John or Genesis chapter 1. He is uh, quoting from verse 27 where it says that God made them male and female. Then he immediately goes from there in the next verse, verse 5, he quotes Genesis 2.24. Now we looked at this passage last week. We'll spend just a minute here to reset the context. And He said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now we said last week when we look at that, that this was God's arrangement. That God instituted marriage. That God saw Adam alone. And God said, that's not good. And God's way of resolving something that was not good, we said, was that God created for Adam a wife. And we said how fascinating that was because God created this woman principally for Adam to have a blessed social existence. We said that God made Adam someone for him to have a companion with, to find a deep personal connection to. We said that God didn't create for Adam a bowling buddy. Or a bunch of other men so that they could form a fantasy football team. But he created a woman. And he said, this is how you're going to structure a social experience. Now Jesus goes from that and he seizes on something that's very important there. Verse 6 he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And where God has joined together, let no man separate. I want you to know what Jesus is doing here is He is seizing on what happens when this man and this wife come into the marriage situation is that they are bonded together by God according to His divine ordering and they experience that mystical and mysterious oneness. And Jesus is looking at that. He's seeing this is God's way of ordering life. This is God's way of ordering marriage. And the question given to Him, is it okay to divorce a wife for any reason at all? Jesus is saying, you need to go back and read what divorce or whether what marriage was given to man for. Companionship. Oneness. To structure His social existence so that it wouldn't be utterly monotonous, but that it would be joyful and blessed. Jesus is looking at that. He's saying, God joins two people together. That union should not lightly or for inconsequential reasons be separated. Well, the Pharisees, the lawyers, seized on that, and they said, "Okay, then. Well, then, why did Moses tell uh, us or command us that we could give this wife a bill of divorce?" And Jesus simply responds by saying, "It's because of the hardness of your heart." Jesus moved beyond the interpretation there. At that point, he just looks at the problems of marriage and he says, "It's because you two just can't get along." And there was given a concession and permission. But then he goes on in verse 9, and he reconfirms. And this is very important that you understand verse 9 correctly. Because what Jesus is doing in verse 9 is saying, This is the side I'm on in the debate between Shammai and Hillel in their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, marries another woman commits adultery. That's what Jesus is arguing here. He's saying, you brought to me Deuteronomy 24.1 and all of your arguments in this huge debate. And you have these two positions, Shemai and Halal. And I'm telling you, the proper interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1 is that Moses is saying, in the case of sexual immorality, the man can send the woman away. It doesn't mean for any reason at all. It doesn't mean for burnt toast that he can send her away. And so Jesus simply reconfirms that and clarifies it in verse 9. But I want you to understand, it's, it's, uh, it's Jesus' opinion about a particular verse. Because if you don't read it that way, you're going to have massive problems when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul says, if a divorce is, is legitimate... Uh, the believer can remarry. If you don't understand this properly, what you're going to have is Jesus against Paul. You're going to have Jesus on one hand saying, no, you can't ever divorce, and you can never remarry. That's what Roman Catholics teach. And they're wrong. They're wrong in terms of their exegesis of the Scripture because they misunderstand these verses. And there is a fundamentalism, I'm going to say not just in Roman Catholicism, there's a sort of fundamentalism even in our uh, conservative evangelical reform circles that takes it that way as well, and it's not right. We have to be clear of what Jesus is saying. If we don't, we're going to completely mistranslate, misinterpret, and misapply the Scriptures. So that's one of the places that Paul is speaking of when he talks about uh, this particular issue. And the same thing comes up in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 31 and 32. It's the same argument that Jesus references here. This is the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> the same Bible verses in view, Jeremiah 20, uh, 24, 1. Jesus quotes it. He said, whosoever sends his wife away... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. And then he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commitment adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus is narrowly focusing on that particular text. He's saying this is a duplication. And he says if you go on or remarry after that, you're committing adultery. And the reason why you're committing adultery is because he said you never really got divorced. an invalid divorce because it's not based on proper grounds. Well, come back to first Corinthians 7. I know that was sort of a uh, a quicker explanation of that passage. Uh, it's not our design to focus on Matthew 19 this morning, but clearly Paul is alluding to that here in verse 10. When he says to the Corinthians, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not leave her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Clearly, he's saying to the Corinthian Christians here, you need to follow Jesus' teaching when it comes down to the sanctity, the solemnity, the importance, the significance of marriage. We must understand it's a very important contract. And so he says, the general rule that Christ taught applies to you. Now, he moves it up to the situation they're dealing with. Verse 12. Now he says, to the rest, I say, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Same works for the other situation. Jesus is now addressing a missionary situation. Rather, Paul is addressing the missionary situation. He's addressing the situation in which uh, uh, two people were unbelievers at one point. They were living in paganism. They were in false religion. Then all of a sudden, one of them gets converted. And now that... Uh, the other spouse, the unbelieving spouse, won't come along with him in terms of the faith or her in terms of the faith. And now what they are doing in Corinth is they are considering the possibility that that means they should divorce. Why? Because verse 14 tells you. What was their reason? The Apostle Paul uh, looks back over the situation of 12 and 13, the mixed marriage situation, the believer-the-unbeliever situation. He says, here's why you don't divorce. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. You can draw out the argument that's being made here. The argument is this. I have to stay married. Uh, they're saying, we have, to, we have to divorce, because if I don't, now my unbelieving spouse is going to pollute me. It's God-honoring for me now to get rid of my spouse because I'm just going to get... uh, I'm going to end up being corrupted by living with this unbeliever. Well, Paul says, hold on. He says, no. Here's the reason why you stay. Because the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the husband. Very important that we see the argument here. Paul is not saying that now they've experienced uh, this uh, sanctification or this moral renewal that's subjective, that's holy, that's inside out that believers go through. He's not saying that when he uses the word sanctification here. What he is saying in this case is that they have been consecrated, they've been set apart. Kind of like utensils of the temple or whatever. So now, uh, Paul has dealt with this particular issue. And he says finally in verse 16, and I think this is by way of encouragement to people who are in those situations. He says, uh, How do you know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife? Uh, see, Paul is giving great encouragement to people who are in those mixed marriage situations saying, look, even if it turns out that you're with an unbelieving spouse, it could be that you will be used by God to be a blessing uh, to your spouse and lead them to Christ. Very similar to First Peter chapter 3 where Peter says to the wives, be submissive to your husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. Very profound, very wise advice here given by the apostles, the people who are living mixed marriage situations. He said, don't badger them with arguments all day long. They don't need that. Uh, don't run around and put Bible verses on their coffee cup and under their pillow and, and in their dashboard or their car and always be uh, beating them down with Bible verses and doctrines. Don't do that. Just just be loving. But the power of that silent profession of faith A godly life, you'll win them to Jesus. He says, back off the arguments. Back off the the sanctimonious talk. Back off the preaching. Just be loving. I believe Paul is using a very similar principle here in verse 16. How do you know God won't use you? So Paul addresses this situation. He talks about the prohibitions. And and I think we have to... And I'm going to make this very clear. We have to... Uh, first of all, we have to appreciate the solemnity. He's saying marriage is solemn. Marriage is sacred. God honors your... Or values your marriage. Jesus values your marriage. And it must not be broken except for the weightiest, heaviest, most important reasons. Now... I hope I've said that clear enough so I'm not accused of saying something that I didn't mean to say. I am saying that God places the highest regard and value upon marriage. And clearly Paul teaches that. Clearly Jesus teaches that. But it'd just be dishonest not to point out that there's also permissions for divorce you can see that in verse 15. The permission to divorce. You know, we talked about this situation of, of the unbelieving husband uh, living, or the wife living with an unbelieving husband, or the, or the, uh, the, the husband living with an unbelieving wife. What do you do? And if they're willing to stay and, uh, and live in that situation, Paul says, by all means, leave it alone. Love your wife. Love your husband. Stay there with them. Keep your vows. Hold your home together. But now in verse fifteen, the assumption is that uh, the unbeliever doesn't want that. The unbeliever doesn't want to stay in that state anymore. Must have been happening in Corinth here that this similar situation was happening, and now uh, you have these uh, these people wondering, well, "What do we do now? How are we supposed to act?" The unbeliever is left. Am I I bound in this particular relationship? Before I answer that question, I want us to understand a little something about Greco-Roman marriages. Uh, People entered into them by consent only at this time. Mostly marriages were entered into for the explicit purpose of having a family and having children. Marriages were registered. They were... Uh, register local courts to make them legitimate so that any children who came from that particular union would be considered legitimate heirs. But here's the thing, at that particular time it, within the Greco-Roman Empire, a woman or a man could walk away from the marriage at any time for any reason at all. They could walk away by verbally saying "I divorce. They could walk away by legally filing for divorce. Or they could simply walk away. And that was considered divorce. And I think that's what Paul is saying here when he says, If unbeliever depart, they didn't give any notice. They gave no verbal notice. They gave no written notice. They just left. But that was considered a legal Divorce. And Paul says, that's a legal divorce. And you now, this is very important, the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. In other words, what Paul is saying is you're no longer married, first of all. But second of all, he's saying you're free to remarry. It's important to make that point. He says you're not under bondage, which means you're free to remarry. Again, against Catholicism, against many uh, neo-fundamentalists today, who would say even if the unbeliever did leave, you have to stay in that state forever. Unless that departure was about sexual immorality. Well... Paul leaves us with that permission or concession then. We have two clear grounds now. One, sexual immorality according to Jesus in Matthew 19.9. Now you have another one in verse 15. If one of the partners divorces and leaves, you're free to remarry. I suppose the question that we would all have at this point, is that it? Is that all the Bible says about it? Let me illustrate what I mean. Because I know all of us are going to have cases in our mind where we think, wow, is that it? I was reading this email last week. It was written to a pastor and biblical scholar who's recently written a book on biblical grounds for divorce. The man wrote in to the gentleman and they posted the email on the website saying, I knew in my heart that the violence would eventually become physical. I just didn't know when. Each verbal assault got more intense than the last, and the insults, threats, and accusations became increasingly hurtful. Her tirades were now up to several hours each. There was no reasoning. The loving woman I had married would surface briefly between blowouts. Her anger was rooted in the horribly abusive childhood. It made it easier for me to have compassion on her. The violence escalated from slapping to punching to biting to kicking to scratching to spitting to death threats and eventually swinging anything that she got her hands on. And he says, I don't remember the exact issue, but I do remember it was just a difference of opinion on something that didn't have a right or wrong answer. The discussion moved into the kitchen where there was a 12-inch carving knife beside the counter. Although it was difficult to imagine her actually attacking with a knife, something inside me was telling me to brace myself for the worst. And in the middle of a sentence and a sequence of events that probably took less than a second, the woman I had tried so hard to love was rushing at me in rage with a knife above her head. God allowed me to protect myself from physical harm in both of us. Then he says this. This is getting us closer to the issues that I want to start sweeping out for a moment. No one had taught me how to deal with a violent spouse. All I knew is that I had made a commitment to cherish and protect my wife. Biblically, I believed I was bound to endure anything she did to me, short of being unfaithful. I felt I was stuck in this situation for life, unless she committed an act of adultery. But I kept myself from hoping for a sinful resolution to this problem. He says, in all of this, she remained what I thought was biblically faithful because she never committed what Jesus called chastity. In other words, a man is writing to say, I'm in a very abusive relationship, but I only find two grounds, or at least what appear to be two grounds. He endured this for years and years and He's beaten down to the point that he's physically exhausted. He lost all of his health. There's all kinds of things in this, this email that he writes about. And he says, am I bound? Because technically it didn't meet either one of those grounds. She wasn't going to divorce him, and she hadn't yet engaged in sexual, sexual immorality. And so he said, am I stuck? It's a tough question. And so I was driven... Not only did the Scriptures, but to see what people in the Reformed tradition had said about such matters. And what I found was somewhat shocking. Martin Bucer, the great Reformer of Strasbourg, argued that if a couple didn't have love for each other, they'd already broken the marriage covenant. And unless they determined to rekindle it, he says it's grossly hypocritical to call something like that a marriage. Martin Luther in his commentary on First Corinthians, I don't have to introduce you to who he was, said if a husband and wife can't live harmoniously, but only in hatred and continual conflict, he said let them be divorced. He said in such cases if a spouse did not desire reconciliation, the other was unable to remain chaste, he said the latter should remarry, for God will not demand the impossible. Butzer in his own city is struck that Strasbourg laid out several grounds for divorce. He says one of them was impotence of the body, the second was leprosy, the other was madness. He says all of these are just cases for divorce. Swingley, the reformer of Zurich, Established a marriage court in 1525 that clarified marital relationships by expounding the grounds of divorce to include extreme incompatibility, desertion, physical and mental illness, and fraud. John Calvin, in his Institutes and Commentaries, takes a very strict and literal hard line, finding only two causes for divorce, sexual immorality. And then also one of the believers or one of the members of the marriage legally divorcing. But then it is ecclesiastical ordinances which were adopted by the town council in 1561 stated three more grounds for divorce and remarriage. Impotence, extreme religious incompatibility, and abandonment. I guess what I'm saying is I look at this, that the Reformers often said... Uh it, very careful, they would work with the scripture very carefully. But then they realized that both wisdom and prudence dictate that there are situations that aren't addressed specifically by, for instance, First Corinthians seven or Matthew nineteen. There's broader biblical considerations to take uh, into the picture. And I'm not saying any of this to resolve uh, to undermine your resolve in your marriage. Trust me, I'm not saying that. I think people should stay together for a life. But if it happens that you have these insurmountable problems and nobody's willing to work past it nobody's willing to bend on them, is there a requirement that two people live in utter hostility or at opposite ends of the houses for the rest of their life? The reformers would have said no. No. And I don't believe that that was hypocritical. I think it was wisdom based upon a whole series of biblical texts and principles. And it reminds us this morning that we have to be very careful about the judgments we make against people who go through those kinds of situations. It leaves me this morning with a series of applications. And again, I just want to stress, I'm not trying to undermine anybody's resolve. Just because there's difficulty in your marriage doesn't mean you get out the divorce papers. It's saying when they're so extreme that they cannot be remedied in any other way. There's a whole host of reformers out there who would have argued from a whole different set of texts and series of different angles. They should probably depart. With that in mind, I'm going to conclude with a series of applications for us this morning. And this is one that we should all be in agreement on. It's a great sin to violate your marriage vows. It's a great sin to violate your marriage vows. That's obvious from the passage here and what Jesus says in Matthew 19. When you enter into a marriage, it's supposed to be for life. You say it's going to be for life, you better aim with all of your heart to make it that way. It's a great sin to violate those vows. Second of all, if you take the marriage vow to stay with somebody for life, You better do your best to uphold it. The very first question I always ask any couple, I don't care whether they're two Reformed Christians coming together, or two unbelievers who've asked me to marry them, the very first question I always ask is, is your intention in this marriage to keep your vows until you die? If they refuse to answer that question satisfactorily I will direct them to someone else Because I refuse to try to work with anybody That doesn't have that as their intention or their aim That is the principle If you take the vow That needs to be the aim Thirdly Based upon the solemnity and the importance of marriage The words of Christ and the Apostle Paul. Many other passages of Scripture, married couples need to diligently work at fulfilling their marital duties and to keep love alive in their relationship. You see, it's not pleasing to the Lord to live in malice and bitterness. I've heard a lot of stories and married couples about how their houses are virtually war zones. but Yet they cling to the sort of literal principle of At least we never divorced. I don't find any virtue in that. Two people who refuse to, to do what Jesus and the Scriptures teach overwhelmingly and comprehensively, which is to love each other. To find great personal fulfillment and, and connection and unity in their marriage. To find as the fulfillment of their social needs. If they, if they refuse to cultivate that kind of relationship in their marriage and they allow uh, their house to become a war zone on battlefield and yet uh, sort of simplistically cling to this principle, I would say you've completely violated your vows already. And it's hypocritical to live that way hypocritical to live that way. No one should live that way. Married couples should not live together that way. What they should do is live together in such a way that they cultivate uh, constantly in their relationship what their marriage is to be aiming at. Which is to be an experience of one flesh. And to find in it great and fulfilling companionship and joy. That's what God calls all husbands and wives to aim at. It's a challenge to every married person here this morning. That's your obligation. And then finally, for those who have lived through divorces and ruin of marriage, you need to hear this warning as well that there's forgiveness. Uh, There's this sort of strange idea out there that people can never be forgiven of this. I don't know why. I don't know how this got to be worse than murder or, or theft or covetousness or any number of sins. False worship, false doctrine. I don't know how it came to be that this was made worse, but somehow, sometimes it is stigmatized in that way. Is it, this is the one great unpardonable and unforgivable sin. Again, this not to undermine the significance or the importance of marriage or the duty and the solemnity to maintain the vows, but here is the, here is the truth. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is compassionate if you return unto Him with your whole heart in repentance. He forgives and heals and restores. Well, as we walk away from our passage this morning, I want us to be mindful of the high standards God has, the commitment that is needed, the duty not simply to stay together to keep the vows, but the commitment to uh, cultivate with your whole heart a deep love and affection for each other as husbands and wives. That's what marriage calls us to. And I trust that uh, this morning we hear God's admonitions and we take them seriously and live with Him in all obedience for His glory. Let's pray.